Chapter Eight of That Affair at Portstead Manor by Gladys Edson Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. More mystery. The morning passed in gloomy quiet. Mr. Clavering's head was too painful to admit of his following clues or seeking new ones, and he was obliged to leave all the investigating to Burton who was prowling about the house and grounds with an avidity that was positively ghoulish. From his lashened windows, Mr. Clavering had occasional glimpses of a grey dress flitting among the trees. He was glad that Mary Grey had not carried out her plan of going up to the city. He would not have felt able to follow her, even if she had taken with her twenty stolen necklaces. In fact, the theft was beginning to pale in comparison with the greater crime. He wondered if there were a connection between them. He sat up with a sudden start that shot circles of pain through his head. There must be a connection. Lady Pevensey's chamber had been the starting point of all the mystery which had ended in tragedy. She had even heard there, a few moments before the shot, footsteps in the wall, so she maintained, and the tapping sound that had so puzzled him. Evidently, the gathered threads of the mystery were to be sought in her rooms rather than in the north wing. Perhaps Mr. Clavering was a little over-eager to accept the belief that no clue was to be found in the north wing. However, viewed in the matter-of-fact daylight, the slamming of a door became less significant. There might have come a sudden gust of wind, and what had crashed into his face might have been a falling piece of furniture, though why it should fall without human agency was not quite clear to him, and at the time he had had the impression that it was a stout chair wielded by a pair of powerful arms that had sent him thudding over the stairs. The same pair of arms, presumably, that had borne him to the top of the circular stairs. But with such a throbbing head as his, it brought him some small comfort to explain away inconsistencies and resolve to confine his investigations, for a while at least, to Lady Pevensey's rooms. He knew that she had declined to enter them again, and he now sent Jenkins to Lady Ursula to inquire if he might not have these rooms, on the plea that he had always been accustomed to a chamber lighted by the morning sun, which was perfectly true. Jenkins brought back word that Lady Ursula was willing, but suggested that there were other empty rooms in the east wing, larger than Lady Pevensey's, and equally sunny, and that Mr. Clavering had best make his choice of these. But he directed Jenkins to move his effects at once to Lady Pevensey's rooms, and by noon he was installed there, with head improving and detective zeal renewed. A thorough search of the rooms failed to reveal anything extraordinary about them, except that, in spite of the greater sunlight, they were more sombre than those he had quitted. But it was a sombreness that Mr. Clavering, who was something of an antiquarian, rejoiced in. With appreciative eye he studied the arched ceiling, panelled in black oak, the broader dark oak panelling of the walls, and the massive wrought fireplace. Were the bright colours restored to the age-dim tapestries, he could well have imagined himself back in the days of Elizabeth, when Portstead Manor was new. The furniture, stately and old, furthered the illusion, the only incongruous note being the modern dressing-table from which Lady Pevensey's necklace had been stolen. From the mullioned casement he looked out beyond the gardens and the parkland to the woods that ringed the manor on the east and north, and he was rudely brought back to the present. Those dense, deep woods, might they not afford a hiding-place for thief or murderer? At least they were worth investigating. But he was not destined to do so that day. In the afternoon, at Lady Ursula's request, he went up to London to search for Robert Sylvester, whom telegrams had failed to locate. Altogether, Mr. Clavering had never spent a more uncomfortable afternoon. 
he was constantly dodging acquaintances, for this modern Beau Brummel had no wish to be seen in so battered a plight. As a matter of fact, the trip to London had been nothing short of heroism on his part, but he had been unable to resist the appeal in Lady Ursula's eyes. Burton's leading questions concerning Robert and his continued non-appearance had alarmed her. Mr. Clavering, spurred on by sympathy, tried his best to locate the missing Robert, but all his efforts ended in failure. At Robert's lodgings he could learn nothing save that a very much worried young woman had called there in the morning, and had gone away greatly disturbed at not finding Mr. Sylvester. More questioning elicited from the porter that she was very pretty and smartly dressed, but not what he would call a lady. Mr. Clavering next tried the clubs frequented by London's gilded youth, but learned nothing there save that Robert was supposed to be out of town indefinitely. He even sought out the domicile of a certain professional beauty whose praises Robert had inadvisedly sung at dinner the night before. Miss St. John, however, had heard nothing of him for a week, but it was her belief that he had gone into hiding to escape persistent creditors. So Mr. Clavering was forced to bring back a most unsatisfactory report to Lady Ursula. Burton, who seemed to be everywhere about the manor, contrived to hear the greater part of the account, and he proceeded to make entries in his book with an air of suppressed triumph. Mr. Clavering felt indignant. It was clear enough whom Burton suspected. "'Mr. Burton,' he said, with an assumption of authority, when Lady Ursula had withdrawn, "'you are altogether wrong in trying to fasten this unspeakable crime on Robert Sylvester. I know that he is wild in everything he should not be, but he is a good-hearted boy, and utterly incapable of taking his brother's life.' "'I should like to agree with you, sir,' returned Burton civilly. "'But in the face of this, it's a bit hard.' He held out a silver-mounted pistol. Mr. Clavering examined it gingerly. On a small plate on the handle, the name Robert Sylvester stared up at him. "'Where was this found?' he demanded hoarsely. "'Under the cushion of one of the library chairs. If you will look through the chambers, you will see that one of the bullets has been discharged.' "'But, but Robert Sylvester was not in the manor at the time of the murder,' Mr. Clavering set forth in protest. "'That will have to be proved,' replied Burton ominously. At dinner, Mr. Clavering ate a desultory meal in company with Mary Gray. To his relief, it was served in the breakfast-room instead of the great, gloomy dining-hall. The other guests, with the exception of Lady Pevensey, Elsie Baring, and Lord Meldrum, had returned to their homes. But Lady Pevensey and her niece were hardly less prostrated than their hostess, while Meldrum had gone to the country club in search of Robert. Mary Gray's usual vivacity had vanished, and she seemed plunged in thought. She scarcely spoke until they were rising from the table, when she abruptly asked, "'What do you think of Burton as a detective?' "'I think he is on the wrong clue decidedly,' responded Mr. Clavering with emphasis. "'As a matter of fact, I should classify his methods as commonplace and unfruitful.' He lacks imagination. He... He does lack imagination, she assented quickly. Once he lights on what seems to him a clue, he follows it up like a bloodhound. Mr. Clavering, do you share his suspicions of Robert Sylvester? No, he answered, but his voice wavered. Neither do I, she said, in spite of the pistol. He told you of the pistol? It was I who found it. Mr. Clavering stared amazedly, but before he could question her, she had left the room. He was too weary to do anything that evening other than go to bed early. He felt that now, at least, he could pass a night of peace. The tragedy had happened, but he should have learned by now that peace and Portstead Manor were alien to one another. After two or three hours' sleep from pure exhaustion, 
he awoke with the sensation that something was wrong. His night lamp had burned out, and the room was intensely dark. He heard furtive footsteps, but whether in the room or in the corridor without, he could not be certain. Then followed a peal of thunder that shook the house, and the wind shrieked in the old gables, and the rain came driving in at the open casement. Thoroughly awakened now, he realized that the countryside was in the grasp of a terrific electric storm. The rain and the thunder were more severe than the lightning, and while groping about in the dark for matches, he came into painful collision with the dressing-table. But he forgot the pain in the discovery he made. The dressing-table drawer was wide open, as though hastily pulled out. It had been tightly closed when he went to bed. His senses were at once alert. There had been someone in his room. He was convinced that there was someone there now. His straining ears caught the sound of quick, smothered breathing. He stretched forth his hands and took a step forward. A slight rustling warned him that the person, whoever it was, was trying to escape. He moved rapidly in the direction of the intruder, and suddenly his groping hands touched other hands, those of a woman, a lady, slim and soft. With a little gasping cry, she shrank away. He caught at her dress, filmy and flowing, but she slipped from him, was gone. A vivid flare of lightning showed the room to be empty, also that the two doors leading from it were closed. He groped his way first to one and then to the other, and found that both were locked as well, just as he had left them upon retiring. In view of the two locked doors, there could be but one explanation of his visitor's disappearance. There must be a secret entrance to the room. Secret passages were by no means unusual in Elizabethan houses. It might well have been, through this passage, that the thief had entered and stolen Lady Pevensey's necklace. But why should anyone come into the room now, and who could it have been? Mary Grey flashed into his mind. She wore just such filmy gowns as that which he had caught at. He had an unpleasant moment, while in imagination he pictured this mysterious young woman, who had no proper feminine shrinking at violent death, bending over his pillow while he slept. The darkness was intolerable and the lightning too intermittent to admit of his finding the matches. He opened the hall door, hoping that there would be a light in the corridor. There was none, but from somewhere below, perhaps from the great hall, came a burst of elfish laughter. Shrill, witch-like, weird, it echoed through the wind-lashed manor. Mr. Clavering shuddered at the sound. Who could laugh out like that in this house of tragedy? Arming himself with a heavy brass and iron candlestick, and stopping only to don dressing-gown and slippers, which he had succeeded in discovering, he crept down the long corridor of the east wing toward the great main staircase, determined to make sure who it was that had come into his chamber, and then had dared to laugh out in elfish glee, for he did not doubt that they were one and the same person. He reached the foot of the stairs in safety, but he found the immense stone-flagged hall an eerie place in the dark and hush of midnight a hush broken only now by the shrieking of the wind and the lashing drive of the rain. The thunder was dying away in the distance, but occasional flashes of lightning through the high-set windows gave transient glimpses of antlered heads upon the black walls and ghostly armored figures in dim recesses. Once it seemed to Mr. Clavering that something moved among the shadows by the stone-pillared fireplace. Courage was not his strongest virtue, the mystery of the great dark hall filled him with dread, and he was beginning slowly to retreat up the stairs when he heard quick, cautious steps crossing the large drawing-room. 
Now that there was need for action, some remnant of courage came to him, and with a determination to unmask this night wanderer, he hastened manfully after the faintly echoing footfalls. Through the large drawing-room into the smaller, onto the ballroom, and through the long central gallery, he padded in his slippered feet, stumbling often against some stone urn or chest or chair, placed, it seemed, purposely in his way. But the footfalls he followed were always just ahead, and he could not overtake them. Suddenly, at the point where the central gallery branched off to the west wing, he came face against a half-closed door. It was the library door, and it cost him effort to cross that threshold, but he knew that the elusive being he pursued was in that room. He heard a chair overturned, followed by a fierce, smothered ejaculation, then entire silence. He pushed wider the door, trying to feel secure in the effectiveness of his brass and iron candlestick. "'Who is in this room?' he demanded loudly, hoping to still the quaking of his heart by the volume of his tone. There was no reply save the sharp click of a lock. At that moment the lightning's glare showed up with startling distinctness the figure of a tall, brawny-looking woman of gypsy type standing in the garden doorway. She was not one of the servants, nor had he ever seen her before. He bounded toward the door, but even before he had ascertained that it was tightly locked behind her, she had disappeared into the rain-swept gardens. A step on the circular stairs made him turn quickly. End of chapter 8